Good morning. Welcome to Calvary. I'm Randall Bradley, and I'm one of the ministers here at Calvary, and we are very glad that you're here to worship today. You might notice around the room today that um, it looks like we didn't clean up some stuff and we just have a mess everywhere. Well, that's intentional because we're in this messy worship series, learning to meet God in the mess. This morning, we're going to look at messiness from a lot of different angles, particularly the mess that we're in as uh, followers of Christ and the all-out dependence that we have on God to meet us in this messy life. Growing up on a farm in rural South Alabama, I can distinctly remember that oftentimes my dad would say to me and my two brothers, boys, we're in a mess. And what he meant in that time was that we were facing a problem that didn't have an easy solution. Perhaps something had gone awry and we'd never been here before and we didn't quite know what to do about it. Those kinds of things happen on farms a lot. One that I remember distinctly was one time we were um, drive on the tractor and we were mowing beside the pond, which you Texans would call a tank, and uh, we got too close to the edge and the tractor was almost turning over into the pond. And we had to figure something out. Um, but that's a story for another day. Another perhaps more interesting one was that we had a lot of hogs on our farm. And one time we had a bunch of baby pigs and they started coming up missing. Well, we searched and searched and tried to figure out what um, animal was getting them. And we finally figured out that the mothers were eating their babies um, again a story for another day, uh, but literally a mess. Sometimes in our personal lives, we face problems that have no apparent solution, problems that we must simply live with and expect the mess that we're in. We see the messes in the lives of others, and yet when they show up at our door, we are surprised and shocked that we are now in a mess and that it's happened to us. Some of us are in the middle of these once-in-a-lifetime messes, and some others of us are just in the middle of an everyday, ordinary, happens-to-all-people kind of mess. But perhaps we're all a little bit like the character Jonah that we're looking at today. Jonah was in a mess, and he was in a mess. As we worship this morning, it's my prayer that you're going to find the liturgy that we participate in seeping with hope all around us. In the prayers that we pray, the scriptures that we read, the words that you hear, the communion in which we participate, that you're going to find that, the, that Christ himself meets us here in the messiness of our lives. May it be so. Let us now worship.
Oh God, like Jonah, you call us to places that we would rather not go. To the very places that we would run from, hide from, shrink from. To the very places that we hate the most. And yet you use those places to save us. Thank you for using hard places to show us your love for us and that you will not leave us as we are. To show us our true selves and that our true selves are those people that rely on you for grace and goodness and that you use these places to save us and to birth us anew. Create in us a willingness to go to those places and to let you create us again. Amen. Oh,
A reading from Jonah, chapters 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. Then they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because because of me that this great storm has come upon you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to, to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the land. This This is is the the word word of the the Lord. Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Oh, 
After my mom's 90th birthday, she had a terrible battle with shingles. In the hours we spent in the emergency room in Arlington, I encouraged her to consider moving to Waco. My siblings lived much further away, and my mom knew Waco. I set up a visit for my mom at a retirement community here, and it was love at first sight. At Providence Park, she met many wonderful people who embraced her and encouraged her. She loved the place and refused to look at any others. So I took her back to Arlington. She got busy selecting furniture to take, deciding what she was going to give to family members, set a deadline, and arranged for an estate sale. It was on. She moved to Waco, made many new best friends, and engaged in every possible social activity. Many circumstances in my mother's life led my sister and me to know that God wanted us to move her to Waco around three years ago. Unlike Les's mother, ours came kicking and screaming, and she said we kidnapped her, uh, but actually her doctors and siblings were very supportive of the move also. It was a very difficult and emotional time for everyone. She hated us for moving her, and she said things that I never thought would come out of her mouth. I cried out to God daily to help us and to do something to change her. We sought professional help for answers, 
And so many in this room walked along and prayed alongside us during these very dark days. And during this time, I doubted my actions of moving her here, even though I felt the Holy Spirit leading me to do so. What I thought would take only a few months for her to adjust took 18 months. But during this journey, God taught me and my sister uh, to totally depend on him daily, and he would give us his strength to persevere. About 12 months ago, the strange phone calls from my mom began. They came at work and at home during the day and in the middle of the night. They became increasingly accusatory and hate-filled. They were shocking. On one occasion, 17 calls in two hours. She had no recollection of any of them. She began to refuse routine doctor visits and necessary medical treatment. Her caregivers called reporting unusual behavior. Then came the falls in the emergency room visits, always in the middle of the night. Actually, they were a blessing. She finally began to receive the medical attention she had avoided. The last few months have involved moves from independent living to assisted living to rehabilitation and to skilled nursing. The days have been calmer and despite persistent confusion, some joy and laughter have returned. Through my mother's brokenness and her months in rehabilitation due to the fact that she fell and broke her arm, the Lord worked in her and through her caregivers and others that were helping her to recover from this fall. They spoke God's truths to her and she finally had peace again through God's grace. She accepted professional help, and she once again said, I love you, to her girls. God performed a miracle in our lives. Her anger subsided, but she still wants to go home. But a home really means that she wants to go back in time to a place um, with my father in happier days. When we can't understand, we cling to obedience. As Lana mentioned earlier, we know our call to love and honor our moms. Prayers of family, church family, and faithful friends strengthen us and encourage us. God used our circumstances to teach us. He placed Lana and me in a study of Joshua a year ago. As Joshua entered new territory, God reminds him and us, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In this journey, God has blessed us with sweet moments and laughter. You feel God's love when your 94-year-old mom wakes up, looks at you, and says, I don't want to go to school today. We always had hope. Our sweet dog, Lily, has played a big part in caring for our moms. We thought we got her because we were empty nesters, but God had other plans. She is a support dog, and every night my mom snuggles with her while Lily looks for cracker crumbs on her couch. And mother also insists on a good night kiss on the lips from Lily, and my mother was not a dog person. 
So we do know the end of this story. It's where our true home is, our Father with our Father in heaven, where we will all be whole again, and we will recognize loved ones that have gone on before us. So what joy and rejoicing there will be. Voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sun of
Now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we don't often remember the middle of a story. For instance, a movie can begin with this incredible opening scene that we will never forget. The first lines of a book can captivate us with words that immediately draw us in. Likewise, the ending can tie things together in a way that leaves us feeling satisfied. Or it can be so shocking that we can't click next episode fast enough on our Netflix queue. But I can't think of a single book or movie or story about which I would say, wow, wasn't the middle just incredible? Because the middle is often where things begin to fall apart, where the way forward is no longer clear, where trust is broken and relationships become complicated. In other words, the middle is where things get messy. We live for a world of captivating beginnings and fairy tale endings, but we would rather not have to go through what happens in the middle in order to get us from point A to point B. As Margaret Atwood, author of The Handmaid's Tale, writes, when you are in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind, or a boat crushed by the icebergs, or swept across the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you are telling it to yourself or to someone else. But we can't avoid or escape this unpredictable, messy space, as painful or as difficult as that may be. As Brene Brown proposes in her book, Rising Strong, if we are going to experience real growth and change in our lives, we can't skip the messy middle part of our stories. Day two, as she calls it. Whatever that middle space is for you is when you're in the dark and the door is closed behind you. You're too far in to turn around and not close enough to see the light at the end. In her work with veterans and members of the military, she says, we talk about the dark middle. They all know it as the point of no return, an aviation term coined by pilots for the point in a flight when they have too little fuel left to return to the originating airfield. It's strangely universal going all the way back to Julius Caesar's famous words, the die is cast, that were spoken in 49 BC as he and his troops made the river crossing that started a war. As Megan Becker reminded me recently, the messy middle spaces of our lives are like what happens when we're going on a bear hunt, as the old children's rhyme goes. Because no matter what we come up against, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, we can't go around it, we've got to go through it. 
because as much as we want to escape, the middle is non-negotiable, and we can't skip day two of our stories. But as Brene Brown says, the middle is messy, but it's also where the magic happens. Well, as we continue our messy worship series today, we make our way to the book of Jonah. And I'm sure that if there were anyone in scripture who wanted to skip over or avoid the messy middle part of their story, it would be Jonah. But that's actually exactly where the problem begins. Jonah purposefully tries to avoid what God is calling him to do. At the beginning of chapter 1, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is northeast of Israel. But instead, Jonah makes a beeline for the nearest port in Joppa and takes a boat to Tarshish, which is far across the Mediterranean Sea, all the way on the other side. In fact, the narrator mentions Tarshish three times here as if he is going out of his way to make sure we know Jonah is going the exact opposite direction of the way God has called him. And notice that Jonah doesn't just saunter along in the wrong direction. Verse 3 says he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now the word flee is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it often refers to someone running away from a significant relationship or community. Hagar flees her mistress in Genesis 16. Jacob flees from Labam in Genesis 31. Moses flees from Pharaoh in Exodus 2. And Jephthah flees from his brothers in Judges 11. But only Jonah is said to flee from the presence of God. But before we can become too critical of him, it's important to acknowledge that Jonah has very good reason for not wanting to go to Nineveh. And I actually don't think this was ever explained to me when I learned about Jonah in Sunday school growing up. The text points out that God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to cry out against the wickedness of the city. But this isn't just a big city with people who happen to have disobeyed God. Nineveh had a reputation of violence and terrorism. As one scholar points out, the city was a symbol of all who opposed the Lord and all the Lord's people. In fact, those whom the book of Jonah addresses would have had memories of their own ancestors suffering under the cruelty of Nineveh and the Assyrians. And so this would have been a similar situation to a Jew who had lost their family in the Holocaust being asked to go on a mission to Germany just after the Nazi regime. And so when you read Jonah through that lens, it's no wonder that an Israelite prophet would not want to go anywhere near that city, let alone to go on a mission for God there. So Moses sets out to go as far away from Nineveh as possible. So he boards a boat for Tarshish, but he doesn't just buy a ticket on the boat. The original language here implies that he paid the price of the boat itself. So not only is he going out of his way to disobey God's call, busting out of town as fast as he possibly can, but he's also paying an arm and a leg to do it. And then Jonah begins this journey of descent, going down to Joppa and down into the boat, sinking further and further away from God. While they're out at sea, the storm begins brewing, and the captain comes looking for Jonah, only to find him down in the bottom of the boat, asleep. 
He's trying to escape what's happening in every way he can possibly think of. But ultimately, the only way he thinks he can escape and save the rest of the sailors is to be thrown overboard. Because Jonah knows the consequences of what he's doing. That the God who made the land and the sea will calm all the waves if he finally gives in. So the sailors throw him overboard. The storm stops. And Jonah is swallowed by a whale where he stays for three days and three nights. Now, I was so excited to dive into Jonah for this series. I've never preached Jonah before. And really, what's messier than being swallowed and then thrown up by a whale? (laughs) But I reached out to Deirdre Fulton this week to ask her about the text, and she immediately called me, and the first thing she says is, so it's not a whale, it's a fish, (laughs) or a large fish, as the NRSV says. But regardless of what it was, we think of this whale or fish as being Jonah's punishment. A story I learned growing up is that Jonah ran away from God, so he got swallowed up in the belly of a whale for three days. But here in the messy middle of Jonah's story, the very thing we assume to be his punishment becomes exactly what saves Jonah. Because even when Jonah is trying to get as far away from God as possible, down to Joppa, down in the boat, down in the very depths of the sea, God meets him there in the belly of a fish that, according to this story, is what saves his life. It's an important reminder for us that even when we feel completely trapped in a mess, Or even when we have completely messed things up, God still meets us there. We can never get away from God's presence, and there's absolutely no space in our lives that is too messy or too messed up for God to redeem. But it also means that no matter how hard we try, we can't escape the mess. Taking a 180 in the opposite direction like Jonah did won't help because we can't go over it. We can't go around it. Sometimes we've just got to go through it. But like Jonah, we often do everything in our power to avoid the messy spaces. It's like we try to live our lives like we're playing a game of Monopoly or Candyland. We think we can draw cards that take us directly to Park Place or the Candy Castle, bypassing that whole journey in between. Or like the game of shoots and ladders, we want to cut out all the spaces in the middle and just take a ladder up two more levels instead. We want to go from Joppa to Tarshish without having to go anywhere near Nineveh. Of course, we see people of faith try to do this all the time, jumping directly from Palm Sunday to Easter without ever having to go through that painful, messy journey of Holy Week. And perhaps we ourselves do this too, sometimes without even realizing it. There's actually a term for it. It's called spiritual bypassing. And we do it all the time when we try to offer some kind of religious platitude or cliche saying when life gets too messy or too painful or too raw for us to handle. Because we can't deal with the discomfort of entering into a messy situation without trying to fix it or sugarcoat it in some way. 
And I actually think it's incredibly damaging to us and to others when we try to do this. I was at Common Grounds on Friday working on this sermon when a student came up to me. And he doesn't go to Calvary, but he recognized me as a pastor in town and wondered if we could talk for a bit. And he said, I've been struggling with depression lately, and almost every Christian I talk to tells me that I should just be happy because the joy of the Lord is my strength. But I'm sad most of the time right now. Do you think I'm doing something wrong? Because I feel like God has just forgotten about me. And all of a sudden, this sacred space emerged right there in the middle of common grounds. We began to talk about the fact that even Jesus wept. That even Jesus felt like God had completely abandoned him when he cried out to God from the cross. And that because of that, we can trust that even in the most painful, messy spaces of our lives, Jesus meets us there. We talked about the incredible value of counseling and how it's healthy and good to go to a mental health professional. And we talked about how you can't have a joy that's authentic if you haven't also experienced a pain that is real. It reminded me of a quote Randall posted on Caring Bridge this week by Frances Weller. It says, the work of a mature person is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other and to be stretched large by both of them. How much sorrow can I hold? That's how much gratitude I can give. If I only carry grief, I'll bend towards cynicism and despair. If I only have gratitude, I'll become saccharine and overly sentimental and won't develop much compassion for other people's suffering. Grief, he says, keeps the heart fluid and soft, which helps make compassion possible. Friends, this is hard work. Mixing grief and gratitude, pain and joy is about as messy as it gets. And yet, it's something we can only learn on day two in those messy middle spaces of our lives. You know, I started out by saying that I couldn't think of any stories that had good middles. But maybe I was wrong. Maybe that's where the best stories and perhaps the most real life stories come from. Not from those once upon a time beginnings or the happily ever after endings, but from the messy middle. After all, these stories are all throughout our scripture, aren't they? God meets Hagar in the middle of her story, after she becomes pregnant and runs away from her mistress, Sarah, and it's in the desert, in her grief, that she becomes the first person in all of scripture to name God, the God who sees me. God meets Joseph in a pit, after his brothers have pretended that he was killed by a wild animal, when in fact they sell him off to slavery instead. And it's only in this messy middle that he realizes what they had intended for evil, God used for good. Sure, the Israelites have that epic moment of crossing the Red Sea when they escape from Pharaoh, 
But then they go through years and years in this messy space of the wilderness before they ever reach anything like the promised land. And it's in that space that they discover manna, how God gives them just what they need for this day, one day at a time. God meets Jonah in the belly of a fish. Even after Jonah has done everything within his power to run away from God, and it's in this messy space that Jonah discovers God still hears his voice. But it's ultimately Jesus who teaches us that God shows up in the middle of our stories, right, when we least expect it. Because as John's gospel tells us, God showed up early in the morning while it was still dark. When Jesus had been buried in the grave for three days and all hope had been buried up right along with him. So sure, we can skip from that opening scene in Jesus' story where the shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks by night and an angel of the Lord appears to them bringing good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And we can go immediately to the scene on the hillside where Jesus ascends to heaven and says, Lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. But when we do that sort of spiritual bypassing, when we skip the messy middle, I believe we are settling for a Candyland kind of faith. And I believe we are completely missing out on a faith that is as real as the grave and as messy as Mary's tears at the tomb and as hopeful as the voice of the resurrected Jesus who calls out to her by name. Sharon Dowd, who will be preaching at Calvary for us next week, said to me this week, you know, it's never too late for God to do something. And we want to believe that with every fiber of our being, don't we? It's so hard to believe it when we're in the middle of the mess ourselves, but perhaps that's exactly the place where we need to hear it the most. Because it's precisely in that moment when you're too far in to turn around and not close enough to see the light at the horizon that God shows up best. But it's precisely in that moment that you can't go over it, whatever has been placed in front of you as much as I wish you could. You can't go below it, as simple as that might seem, and you can't go around it even though I wish it were otherwise. Friends, sometimes we have to go through it. But as you do, as you go through your day two or your messy middle, whatever that may be, remember these words from Isaiah. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. So when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and you are precious in my sight. And so, God, I ask that whatever messy middle space we find ourselves in today, God, meet us here. God, we need you. We need you to show up when we least expect it. We need to be reminded that you have not abandoned us, that you are still in this story. And so, God, meet us here. 
and give us the courage to follow you when you call us to do things we never thought we could possibly do. When it would be so much easier to go above it or below it or around it or just to completely run away from it, God, give us the strength to walk through it hand in hand together with you. We ask all these things in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. Well, the truth is we follow a God who enters into the messiness of this world to be with us. Jesus was never afraid of messy situations. He walked toward them instead of away from them. And perhaps when you and I feel like life is getting too messy, too complicated, or too difficult to navigate, that is precisely when Jesus is walking toward us too. Maybe you want to take a step toward following Jesus today or toward becoming part of our community of faith at Calvary where we follow Jesus together in the best ways we know how. However God is leading you, our ministers will be in the back of the sanctuary ready to receive you, to pray with you as we continue in worship.
Something that Calvary ministers know that the rest of us may not know is that sometimes when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we make a mess. There are often breadcrumbs scattered around the floor, and um, yeah, you've seen that. Uh, my favorite, um, actually not my favorite, are the breadcrumbs floating in the juice. One time the person who was pouring the juice into the cup actually didn't realize there was um, more in the pitcher than there was in the cup and uh, she just kept pouring and the juice was everywhere. Once I was serving communion at another church, and let's just say this church was a bit fancier than we are at Calvary. The communion cloth was pristine white it looked like it had been specially made just to fit this table, and I think it had been ironed the morning right before the service. After we were finished, I looked down and realized that as I had been serving the cup, I had been dribbling bright red juice all across that pristine, beautiful communion cloth, and I was mortified. But I would imagine that Jesus and his disciples made quite a mess when they gathered around the table on that night. I bet there were quite a few crumbs and spills all around on that table, too. Perhaps even a faithful Lord's Supper might be a messy one. Because it is in the messiness of this table and the messiness of our lives that Jesus says, come as you are, and Jesus meets us here. And so we come carrying the weight of our sin and our mistakes, and we are met here by grace. We come with anxiety and fear about what lies ahead, and somehow we receive hope. We come with doubts and disillusionment, and we are met with an experience of faith that we can touch and taste. We may come feeling alone or forgotten, and yet we lock eyes with another person, another part of the family of Christ. We come to this place weary, and we receive bread for the journey and strength for another day. Today, Christians all around the world are celebrating World Communion Day, which means that people of every tribe and every tongue all across the world are taking part in this messy yet meaningful meal. And so today we come to this table again to remember how on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and when he had broken, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, whatever mess you find yourselves in today, come and receive strength for the journey.
If you are new with us at Calvary, we are so glad you're here today. Uh, We hope you'll stick around a bit after worship and give us a chance to greet you. So Calvary folks, if you see someone new around you, I encourage you to introduce yourself and get to know them a bit after worship today. Also, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who came to help with Calvary Cleanup Day yesterday. We probably had 25, 30 plus people, and I hope you'll notice little pockets and corners around the church uh, that are looking a lot nicer today. So thank you for helping us to be a good steward of this space and to use it well. Today we will take up the Samaritan's Fund as we take up when we celebrate Lord's Supper. That's a fund that goes toward emergent needs in our community and in our congregation, and it is used often and well. And along with that, we are excited that Will Ward is going to be starting as our church social worker, and he'll be serving with us for the next eight to nine months this year when we don't have a social work intern with us. I hope you'll read more about that in the tower, but we look forward to serving with Will, and thank you for what you will do in the upcoming year. And then last, I just ask that you keep Calvary's mission team in prayer. We are going to be going on a half-day retreat today uh, just to assess areas of mission here at Calvary and to dream about new directions that God might be calling us. And so we are excited about all that lies ahead there. Well, please join me in this benediction. Friends, may the God who calls you from this place journey with you as you go. May God delight in you with joy, bringing unimagined graces. Walk with you in darkness, shining light along your way. May God be close to you in pain, giving strength for every moment. And comfort you in fear, granting courage to be brave. May God's love surround you. May Christ's mercy astound you. And may the Spirit abound in you, so that you live in the fullness of the God who is with us always. Amen. Live in grace, trusting the arms I will hold you. Go in peace, live in grace, trust God's love. Take bread for the journey and strength for the fight. Comfort to sleep through the night. And the fork in the road, and a heart that knows the way home. Go now in peace. Amen. <laughs>